Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, I have uh, Maddie with me now, Patterson, formerly Scordia. You might know her. Uh, she's a motorcycle a racing journalist and do, does a lot of stuff. And I'm very thankful that we uh, get to do this. Uh, we tried a podcast a year ago, but uh, due to some technical issues, uh, it didn't work out uh, as I wanted to. So, uh, yeah, nice to see you again. Uh, how are you doing after the overseas races and what's life like? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm really tired, but that's not just <laughs> racing. That's, you know, jet lag. Um, yeah, good to be back. Good to be back in season. A lot going on, a lot of news in the last week or two, especially in the last 48 hours. So it's go, go, go. It's just nonstop. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. What I wanted to talk to you about, uh, especially is uh, MotoGP signed the new ch chief commercial officer, the CCO from the NBA. And to be honest, I forgot his name. <laughs> Daniel, <laughs> But, Daniel uh, Rosamondo. Yeah. yeah, Daniel Rosamondo, he. And um, I would like to work out with you uh, because marketing is kind of your expertise. What's like going wrong in MotoGP? Because since Mark Marcus is injured all the time, Valentino Rossi is the, uh, retired, the racing in itself isn't the best and uh, COVID had, it had its fair share um, on it, that mm, the whole product MotoGP isn't necessarily the one it used to be, you know, from yeah. an attention perspective and from an excited uh, excitement perspective. I feel like Austin was like one of the most boring races I've ever seen, but it was kind of interesting because Alex Rins was winning. But if it was Mark Marcus winning again in Austin and or Peko winning again, you know, <laughs> it wouldn't be special. But um, yeah, basically, this is what I want to work out uh, with you. So let's get right into it. Um, and I would like to start like after the CRT Open era because. Uh, Credit to Donna, in my opinion, they did a very good job managing yep. this financial crisis and all the aftermath with the CRT bikes. For everybody who doesn't know, they basically said, okay, we have a couple of manufacturers, Honda, Ducati, and Yamaha, who are providing um, MotoGP bikes, and the rest was non-existent. So they said, okay, you can race with basically street bikes and uh, fill the grid up with it then the next step was the, was the open category where they had the open electronics and this was like the basic for the um, step uh, spec electronics they they're running now uh, especially like what what ducati did back then when they decided to go into the open because they were reaping all the benefits and yeah so basically i feel like they uh, made a really good job then and we had some re very very successful years with a lot of manufacturers a lot of competition and uh, shit was hitting the fan basically uh, with covid and when mark marcus was injured bless you thank you and um and uh, valentino rossi retired now and the racing in itself isn't the best at the moment but um yeah i feel like we should start around this time frame uh, what is going on with MotoGP that they're incapable of marketing the product and seemingly making all these bad decisions I think what can be complicated about MotoGP and when we look at this particular era so we're going back like let's say five within the last decade so like pre-2020 um, we developed really quickly we entered a new era of like aerodynamic engineering 
and it happened almost spontaneously. You know, I remember, um, I, I remember vividly when they got uh, the, the new tyres at Phillip Island to test in 2019, I think it was, or 2018. Um, and the boys were flying and they were like, can we start wearing these now? Like, this is awesome. Um, and then, you know, the following year, Ducati kind of introduced this aero scoop and it just, it outdeveloped the tyres that had just been developed. So I think when you think about MotoGP, there's, there's a couple of things that are, are really relevant to it. I think number one, it's the rate at which we've developed. We've outdeveloped all the circuits that we race at. We're potentially too fast for so many of them. That's why we don't go to places like Laguna Seca anymore. That's why we don't go to places like Donington in the UK. Um, I think another really crucial piece of this sport that people forget is that the longevity of motorcycle riders is not the same as the longevity as Formula One drivers. Um, Formula One drivers tend to be able to race a little bit longer. They tend to have better opportunities post-racing, which still make them very influential in the sport. Um, motorcycling, particularly MotoGP, because it is such an acute sport, it's a very niche sport. You know, it's not like riding road racing. It's it's not like TT. It's not like Irish road racing. It's not like Pikes Peak. Um, it's very niche. It means that there's not a lot of longevity in the riders themselves. Um, and I think for Dorna, when I think about Dorna, there was a high dependency on maybe three or four big names for a long time. You know, if we're thinking about the alien era and all of that kind of stuff, it goes without saying Rossi's obviously at the top of everyone's mind. He still is. Mark Marquez, he's not a particularly old fella. Um, but these injuries have obviously played a huge part in where he is now, how he feels with his team. Um, looking back again, you know, this dependency on Lorenzo, I think even when Lorenzo left um, Yamaha initially and went to Ducati and Honda, there was an opportunity to, that there to make a better narrative out of what was going on and it was missed. Um, you know, people still talk about Casey Stoner and Stoner was like the greatest of all time. He really was. Uh, but we still talk about that like it's happening today. You know, we rely, we rely really heavily on these hero stories from five, ten years ago. Uh, and we're in a position now where the competition is so close. You know, I, I have to agree with I, I disagree with you a little bit. I think the racing is spectacular at the moment. I really do. I think it's got it has everything. It does. It's got great competition. It's got great engineering. Um, you know, I can put my hand up and say I was one of the most critical pe person people uh about sprint races I still am because I think it was introduced in an incredibly distasteful way I think it's not done very well in terms of how the weekend is organized uh, but in saying that I think the racing is quite compelling to watch um, so we have all the components all the components are there it's just about connecting the dots and I, I really believe that what worked in the mid-2000s, the way that media worked then, doesn't work like that anymore. Um, you know, when you really think about the rise of people like Valentino Rossi, it wasn't because he was the best. Like, he was, but that wasn't why he was so prolific in society. It was because it was the rise of the internet. It was the rise of uh, translations, Google images, all of these things sort of 
came around at the same time that Rossi entered the media and entered sport. So when we think about Rossi, he's so impactful because he was able to see ahead of the curve in terms of what media works. Um, and, you know, that's a credit to himself, his teams, his businesses. He's done really well at always being ahead of the media curve. Um, when I look at Dorna today, I think that they're, they're just behind, always behind the eight ball. You know, other businesses are making it much easier for a consumer to be involved in their business, to pay for what they want, to customise their own experience and their user experience. Whereas Dorna is very committed to owning their data and protecting their data. And I respect that like any business would. Um, but to the extent where fans feel like they can't be involved and cutting out audiences based on what, really? You know, if they're paying for their media pass, if they've just screen recorded a crash or something like that. Um, we see other agencies and, and I suppose our competition in the arena almost exploit that in the best way. They want fans talking about it. They want hashtags trending. They want extreme love for their sport, extreme fans, because it drives things like sales and sponsorship. Um, from more renowned businesses, we might say, things that are a little bit easier to the eye, things that people know. Businesses align themselves with what makes them and generates them more income and more data. And I think that's kind of what what Dorna has missed. It's really aligning themselves with the right brands to pursue their own business and vice versa. Um, and I think that's where we're at now with Daniel Rossomondo. I really, I, I've taken a really good deep dive into what he's done with the NBA and his background, you know, previously to the NBA, he was all the agency boy. So he knows his stuff. He knows what media is. He knows how it works. Um, anyone that's worked in agency will get this. It's hard. Agency is one of those jobs where you turn up at seven and you leave at midnight. Like it is a hard, hard job. Um, but it's also what makes this entire media ecosystem work. And when I think about MotoGP and, you know, World Superbike to a degree, at the end of the day, it's sport, but it's, an, it's entertainment. So it has to be sold in a way that is engaging, not just the race. Everything around it has to matter to the person watching to be highly switched on, to be engaged. Um, so I think that's where we're at right now. And it's, I'm actually quite excited because I think this is a really important time of change. And I'm very positive person people that meet me might think I'm an absolute pessimist I'm not I always look for the upside and the bright side as much as I am a critic there is an upside to this and I think it's going to be a really exciting year or 18 months ahead from here yeah and regarding what you said with the media curve it's pretty interesting because Formula One is like doing the exact opposite they're in ahead of the curve and Dorna is like behind and the best example is that they had drive to survive in 2019 I believe mm -hmm. or maybe 18 I don't remember but it was like let's say five years ago and then They are reaping all the benefits. There are half a million people in Austin. And how many fans were there uh, at last weekend? Like 100,000? I can't tell at you. Coda, Coda won't tell us. We don't know. I okay. would say maybe 50, 60,000, but we don't know. Coda won't release the data to us. So let's say it's between 10 and 20% of what Formula One is doing. Yeah. And for a product that is, in my opinion, better than Formula One, I mean, Formula One had the benefit of this great battle between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen in 2021. 
but uh, the racing in itself over the last two years isn't necessarily the best. And I feel like with Drive to Survive and what they're doing with the media, it's super, super important that MotoGP doesn't just copy it, but does it their own way. It's a little bit like Yamaha with the Arrow. They can't just copy what Ducati is doing. They need to find a way what works for them because the whole bike is different and the whole yeah. product of Dorna is super different. But in a way, it's similar, you know? And um, when when you watch Drive to Survive and uh, see people who are a little bit further down the grid and you develop maybe a relationship with them through the series. And for example, Remy. Remy and I uh, met in 2021 and uh, we met a couple of times now and uh, I really like him. And this relationship we kind of developed over the years makes me watch World Superbike now. And when he's fighting for eighth place, it's much more important to me on, on what's going on to the front. And I understand that not everybody can get this kind of relationship to a rider, but they need to figure out a way how to communicate the personality of a rider and to create this relationship through social media, through whatever, Netflix or whatsoever. But they, I feel like they're excluding the fans a lot and this is what pisses me off a lot that fans want to do something and they're not allowed to or they're being shut down or they don't even have the opportunity or whatsoever you know i think the really important thing about fans and you'll hear a lot of brands and businesses say this right customers are the core of our business we care about our customers we love our customers the reason why brands and businesses say that is they do love their customers because their customers put money in their account Right. So the important thing about customers and fans, right, and consumers is that they continue to be a part of the sport where it matters. Um, and where it matters is things like digital access. How much does that cost? Where it matters, it's an event. It is an event at the end of the day. A lot of people try to say to me, oh, you know, like if there's not a lot of people there, it doesn't matter. It's a better view on television anyway. I would argue that that's not completely true because what's the what's the point of running it at an event and selling tickets if you're not going to sell out? Um, I think as well, a, a thing that I get really bothered with when it comes to Dorna is just how the video pass operates. First of all, it's not great technology. They're using, a you, everybody knows that, almost the interface itself feels like it's from 2012. If I bought that in 2012, I would have been greatly impressed. Nowadays, I'm a little bit like, we can everyone can do better um the cost associated with that i think is extremely high yes you get great value in terms of access um but you know most people work monday to friday so they're not watching fp1 and fp2 that's not on their radar so it's about making things more accessible um and in terms of the video pass itself you get to about race 12 and the price halves um and anybody who works in consumer goods and FMCG will know that when you slice something, it almost devalues it. Um, people don't see the video pass as valuable. They really don't. I'm, what, what is the point of having it? Meanwhile, in Australia, you know, you can download an app like KO Sports, which gives you access to everything from rugby league, uh, football, motorcycling. It's all in there. And it was only about $14 a month. And that was by the Fox Sports Network. So again, the reason why it's so expensive is because of previously existing broadcast partnerships. Um, 
And actually, more times than not, it's cheaper to watch through broadcast partners. But then that opens up another kettle of fish, which is if I'm in the US, there's only one broadcast partner. And I've got odd hours to watch it because obviously it's in a different continent completely. Um, I can't pre-record. It's only showing the race. It's not showing me any other picture of the event. So it really, I I think the time for Dorna is now to really evaluate what is more important. Is it broadcast media? Um, Is it, you know, pay to to view? How how do we make it accessible to people? Um, Is it, you make the sprint races free? You know, what, what is the correct path? And I, I'm not the one who's going to be able to tell you when those broadcast partnerships expire, when they change. Um, you know, in terms of the sprint races, the reason why they're not free right now is because previously you just had, you know, FP1, FP2, Q1, Q2 on a Saturday. That was broadcast. And it was just replaced with sprint races. So it doesn't change the broadcast deal in any way. Um, And I think that's a major part of what is sort of preventing people globally from being involved in the sport. And you have to think as well, the globe is a big place. There is a different uh, cost of living for every place that you're in. So 150 euro might not seem like a lot of money to me, but to someone in Indonesia, that's a lot of money for a lot of different reasons. Um, So almost, almost cutting out the smallest part of your audience who might be the most passionate is a negative on itself you know so it's it's really about making it accessible to all people all over the world it doesn't need to be commentated in english it doesn't need to be commentated in indonesian people can watch that race and love it for what it is everything around it however should contribute to that experience from the consumer touch point right through to the event everything has to contribute to it um so that's I feel like that's one key piece that Daniel is going to have to figure out at some stage. And, you know, I I wrote about this last week. I don't know if you saw it, but, you know, what they were able to do in the NBA was create things like team only passes. So you only watch the games that your team play. Um, They were able to create different levels of investment for you. So you could really tailor that consumer experience for yourself and that user experience. You don't pay for what you don't watch. so I think there's an opportunity to do that. And I think he's got a lot of hard work ahead of him. And I think personally, if I was anyone who'd been at Dorna for a long time, I'd be a little bit intimidated by him because his experience extends past motorcycling, which is not something that's common here. Most people here only know motorcycling and it doesn't always mean they know what's best. Yeah. You touched on something very interesting, which is the whole accessibility. I feel like the accessibility of MotoGP is hidden behind a paywall. In a lot of countries, it's either pay TV or a video pass. And I feel like if you want to gain fans, first and foremost, you need to make it free. You need to make it accessible. And also what you said about the races. Yes, it's better to watch them on TV. But the whole experience around it, you don't get it at home. And this is where you put uh, the value in it. Of course, when I'm sitting at a grandstand in what, I mean, in Aston, for example, I was at uh, World SBK in Aston. I'm sitting at the grandstand at turn one. You can see the whole section of, um, of turn one, two, three, four, five, whatsoever. And then they uh, go into the back straight and you don't see shit anymore. But 
what's great about World SBK that you can go into the paddock, you can talk to riders and the whole experience around it was very, very beautiful. And it's not nothing, it's not something I need to see every weekend. No, but once a season, twice a season, maybe that's great. And if you're a very passionate MotoGP fan and you get the experience you deserve, you maybe get to uh, meet your riders and it doesn't always have to be Mark Marcus also Moto2 riders, Moto3 riders, talk to them a little bit and uh, make them accessible, make them accessible through social media. Um, for example, in Moto America, Josh Heron made a beautiful video about what was going on in the last lap there in race two. And he explained all of the things you don't see on TV and you don't see on um, on any social media because it's just his point of view. He and his technicians know what was going on there, but the fans didn't. And he explained it to them. He made it accessible to the audience yeah. and it's beautiful. And I would like to see this more in MotoGP. And, uh, last, uh, last time I made the podcast, I had, uh, Jen from GP series on, I don't know if you know her. Yeah. But, we know each um, other really well. <laughs> she, she got her, um, got her account, account banned because, because she was making her own videos while she was in the paddock and Dorna said, okay, you can't do this. And they made this really ridiculous list on what you have to do. If you're in the paddock and want to film something, you have to tag MotoGP, you have to do this, you have to do that. You're not allowed to do this. You're allowed to do that. And it's so complicated and takes away from the whole experience that the accessibility is one point you may, you have to make the accessibility on tv good on social media the experience has to be better and also the in-person experience has to be much better when you're in a race and then you maybe need to work on interacting with the fans a little bit more for example the gp series uh, thing if she's in a paddock and making videos of her buying a paddock pass being in a paddock and being in touch with her uh, favorite riders that's free marketing and somebody didn't get the memo that me making memes or what it's free marketing for them but apparently they don't understand this and they're shutting everything down whatever is um, not in their line of propaganda let's say i will say this that has recently changed a little bit so in terms of what so previously i wasn't allowed to take videos in the paddock i could take still photos that was it um i wasn't allowed to sort of be that interactive it's kind of changing slowly and i i don't think it's changed enough at all but i think someone's taken a hit to the head and gone oh crap maybe we should catch up on this and although it's not made a great deal of difference people are aware it's changing and with dawna if things are changing there's a lot of pressure coming from above and i don't mean carmelo right i mean like bridgepoint because things don't change um the 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 more you work out how this business operates how they interact with their staff with their fans with their freelancers how they manage media um you get to you know there's a rhythm there's a way to get to what you it's never from a to b to c it's always like a b d e f g and maybe i'll get to c eventually you know you've always got to take the long way um so that's starting to change now i think it will take I'm betting 18 months. And I said this last week, the press conference between Daniel Rosamondo and Carmelo Espeleta was a little bit chalk and cheese, right? 
Daniel's the cheese, Carmelo's the chalk. They have nothing in common, absolutely nothing. Um, Daniel is not a motorcyclist. He does not have to be. I don't, I don't care. I really don't care. I'm not concerned if he likes motorcycles or not. I'm concerned whether he can sell the product or not and make it profitable and make it exciting and make people see how exciting it is. Um, Carmelo, on the other hand, is an ex-racer. You know, he's, he's all motorcyclers. And, and I'm sure he's not a bad bloke. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sure he's not. I'm sure he's got his own life, his own family, his own passions. I'm sure MotoGP is a deep passion of his. Um, I'm, so, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but there's a joke lining up I don't want to miss. He loves his family so much that he gives them all the MotoGP jobs. So I guess he's a good guy. Well, I mean, I'm not, uh, I have to be careful of what I say here. I really do. <laughs> Look, at the end of the day, it's not my business. It really isn't. I don't care who gets the job. I actually don't. I care whether or not they're good enough to do the role. That is my issue. I don't care. Appoint your son, daughter, nephew. Just don't make it about, you know, exploiting, uh, what is it, construction contracts in Kazakhstan, for example. Things like that. Let's let's keep all of that away from our sport. But that aside, um, I really, I am of the belief that within the next five years, it will be someone, I'm probably speaking way, way out of tone and way too far ahead of myself, but chalk and cheese and cheese will be the new CEO. And that decision won't come from Dorna, that will come from Bridgepoint. That's my prediction for it. Um, in terms of what you were saying about making it free, I kind of disagree a little bit. But hear me out, I don't want to make everything free because I, I truly believe that people will pay for what they see value in. I want to make it valuable, even if it's sprint races, right? They don't have to be free necessarily. They just need to be slightly more accessible than they are now. How do we do that? Renegotiating broadcast contracts, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but our sport is so valuable. It is so competitive. I think there are things that Dorna have done really well and I think there are things they've done really, really badly. Like the COVID era, for example, 2020, they did a spectacular job. I, I can't say that they didn't. To get this event rolling through that period was incredible. They did a very good job at it. What they failed to do was promote the fact that they had a really good season despite everything that was going on around them. Um, they had a new world champion. They had a different race winner for how many was it like six or seven races in a row there was a different winner it was such a compelling season and that wasn't marketed well um and now we're at a stage where everyone forgets that joe and me is a world champion like that guy is a world champion do you know how many of like how hard that is to be it's only one of few that get that title get that glory um And that storyline's not there anymore. And I think that's the other, the key piece to this is creating a narrative that people will buy into. And I'm not saying that you have to have enemies and you have to have rivalries, but you have to make it sellable because people love a story. People love a battle. People love challenges of overcoming hardship. That's what people buy into. And when you're not seeing that actively, it's really hard to believe that it's worth watching. And I think people get the concept of rivalries mixed up with challenges. I don't care for rivalries, right? And I can tell you, half the people in the paddock on the grid don't necessarily like each other, but they don't promote that. And that's a good thing. That is a good thing. However, what needs to be promoted is 
the challenges within the team, the challenges against yourself. Um, I can think of a number of writers who have probably struggled internally in the last 18 months, probably uh, Frankie Morbidelli, for example. I know that I've asked him several times, what have you done emotionally, physically and mentally to sort of change your perception of your job and your work-life balance? Jack Miller definitely struggled late last year. You know, he was he was the factory man. I'm not saying he was a world champion, but he was a company man, so much so that it kind of left him without a seat at that company anymore for the benefit of someone else. Um, Remy Gardner, another really great example of youth, growing up, um, work-life balance, all of those things matter. And I think they're the stories that people forget to tell here and they get overlooked, which is is its selling point. Don't get me wrong. The, like I said, the racing is great. The product is great. You should be able to turn on the TV, watch it, enjoy a compelling 45 minutes of racing because it mostly is. Camera, cameraman might need some work occasionally, but it mostly is. I think what makes people feel connected is accessibility and stories bring accessibility. This basically goes back to the relationship part I was talking about earlier, that you kind of need to get to know the riders, not only as riders with a helmet on, also as the human behind it. Yep. And Formula One is doing a good job with Drive to Survive to do that. And those stories, Remy, for example, or Frankie, or all of these um, different riders who have a story to tell, Fabio, Jean-Mia, everybody, basically, you don't know about this when you don't talk to them or talk to people near them and they got so used to valentino and mark marcus carrying the whole sport that it basically got to a point where it feels like they're just okay let them cook we're we're just here to reap the rewards and then all of a sudden they're not carrying the thing anymore and it stands still and i think What's really important to note when we talk about getting to know writers is who owns the media. Um, essentially, right, when I think about Dorna, they have no ownership over media. They really don't. That's why that's why the, the video pass is so expensive. Um, in the same token, they also have no concept of how to work with the factories. When you think about the writers and you look at their profile, Let's let's take their Instagram profiles, for example. It's all very unnatural media. And what I mean by that is everything is so curated that it feels so far removed from reality. And the reason for that is the factories own the media. They own that piece of media. They own that content. Um, I would say that's a little bit more pro pro prolific with Japanese factories than perhaps European factories. I think um, people that work at places like Ducati and KTM get away with a little bit more of a relaxed media approach in terms of who they are, their ability to be who they want to be and share parts of their lives that others don't necessarily get to see. Um, and if I was Dorna, for example, if I was the new chief commercial officer, I'd be looking at ways to workshop with teams about creating more accessible riders. That doesn't, when I say accessibility, it doesn't mean that you get to touch and feel them personally. It means that you get to feel like you know them despite having never met them. Um, giving them sort of freedom over creativity. Uh, you know, over a race weekend, you're always going to have a press officer posting on your account. That's normal. 
But when you're not at work, here's a video of me doing whatever the hell I want. Aleish Spargo, for example. Aleish gets social media better than anyone else. He really does. He is like, he lives for it. He loves it. He feels connected to his fans. He really has a, a really great way of connecting with people through mediums and platforms like Twitter and Instagram. He's very responsive. He likes to talk. He likes to ask questions. Um, and not all of them too. You know, Pecco, on the other hand, Pecco said in an interview last week uh, with the race media that I I didn't want to be a, a celebrity. I didn't want to be a role model. I don't consider myself a celebrity. For me, it's really difficult to, to be that accessible. Um, but in the same token, I think when you give people the opportunity to be themselves, they are therefore accessible. So I think if I was Dawner, I'd be looking at strategies to work with factories and work with writers uh, to give them more creative freedom. And also not to find them when they say there are things that they don't like. You know, I, I'm pretty sure Zarko probably got fined last fortnight talking about the sprint, uh, not the sprint, what was it? The fan parade in the press conference. I have no confirmation of that, but I also understand how this paddock works. And more than likely, because he was critical of the event owners, he probably got a 250 euro fine. Um, you kind of need to allow writers to have a voice and a say. And if you're so anti-writers union, if you're not giving them the opportunity to at least say they don't like it, of course they're going to be even more closed up and angry and critical and less less forthcoming to work with you. Um, so, it, you know, it, it is a bunch of things. There's so many verticals that play into this. But, again, you're completely correct. It is Accessibility is getting to know someone on what feels like a personal level, even if that's completely false, even if they're not like that and they know they're doing it for the right reasons. A fan feels great about it. And I, I really feel like in our sport, our fans kind of get left behind or are an afterthought uh, in terms of what makes us grow. And I really, I, I have faith that that is changing. I really do see that changing in the next 18 months. I don't think it will always be this way. And as with most businesses, you know, even when we look at Formula One, um, and we look at the sort of Eccleston era. Formula One was where we are now as Eccleston was getting ready to depart. And I don't know how many, like I feel like a few people are starting to make that connection now, right? When he left, there was probably about a 12-month period of, oh, it's Formula One. You know, the, nobody really overtly cared. Um and in the background, Liberty was really working hard to re-energise the sport and reimagine it in a different way. Now, I can sit here and tell you I still find that sport incredibly dull. Like, I, I'm not interested in it whatsoever. But I feel like I know the writers so personally. I love the narrative around it. I actually love the competition around it. I love the story. Um, I buy Formula One merchandise. I, I have no interest in Formula One. I just want it. That's how you get fans because I can almost guarantee I will go to a Formula One event this year and be like, oh, my God, how do I – I need to be here because that's how you acquire people. Um, so I think those I, – I do think that will happen and I do see it happening in, in the next sort of 18 to 24 months. Uh, chalk and cheese. I really see that the, the cheese is it, – it will happen. It will happen. But – 
I think it's going to have to happen with a bit of patience from all of us to go, we'll get through it. We'll get through these hard moments, but it will be worth it. And, you know, there'll be changes that will benefit the sport deeply and people will also deeply dislike. Long-term fans will also deeply dislike. Um, But when you think about fandom, you have to remember if they've been following it for 35 years, they're probably going to continue following it despite the fact that they don't like the changes because acquisition is about new people not existing ones yeah look at me i'm not the biggest fan of what's going on in MotoGP at the moment but i'm still doing what i'm doing you know and uh i don't like the whole thing where the arrow is going i don't like the whole sprint racing thing i don't like the commercial aspect of MotoGP, what they're doing and i hope it changed and I said, I can't remember when I said it, but uh, I said one time that it might be a good thing if the MotoGP product gets sold to a different company and Dorna isn't responsible for it anymore. And a more progressive company, let's say like Liberty Media, is doing stuff differently and modernize it and bring new fans in. And like the Sprint Race is a very good example. You pretty sure remember the press conference in austria it was an absolute shit show and i remember i got abused yeah (laughs) (laughs) i watched it and i was like what the fuck is going on it it got like the for everybody who doesn't uh, who didn't watch it it got the vibe when your parents tell you something you ask why and they say because i tell you so yeah that that's the vibe uh, they were kind of having and some journalists made very, very interesting and good points. For example, Matt Oxley asked, when are we arriving at the limit of what a rider can do? And 70-year-old Camelo Espeleta, who has no knowledge whatsoever what it's like to race a MotoGP bike, says, no, we're far away from it. Like, how the fuck do you know? And yeah. there we come to a riders' union again. I mean, with the uh, podcast with Remy... I uh, we talked about the whole riders union as well and my suggestion would be that there's a riders union a manufacturers union and like a government body union of Dorna FIM Erta whatsoever and you have uh, three thirds and to change something you have to agree at least with somebody else let's say Dorna wants to introduce sprint races And the manufacturers have to agree or the riders have to agree, but there has to be a decision. And maybe there are some things where you can uh, get away with two thirds. Maybe there are some things where you need everybody agreeing, you know, and therefore getting everybody on board. And I feel like this could be a good opportunity to have like a riders association, a manufacturers association, and like a government body there to work together. The thing you have to remember about a thing like a riders union It's not hard to pull together, okay? A riders' union, all you actually need is all riders on the MotoGP grid to sign a piece of paper with a signature and 250 euro each, which is their signing for the year, to be part of a union, right? The thing about it is that even if they had their union, who does what? Where does the power come from? When we think about who holds power in this sport, believe it or not, it's not Dorna. Dorna don't have the power. I think um, it's very easy to blame Dorna because they have made decisions which have led us to this point. And I think, you know, a really great sort of piece to look at is the whole Suzuki thing. Dorna should never have let them go because it made them look incredibly weak, which they are now. 
They lost so much money. They lost a factory who had signed a contract. You know, it's uh, breaking a contract is it, you can't do it. You shouldn't be. That's what the contract's there for. And it made them look incredibly weak. Um, when I think about the bodies that play a hand in this sport, the only one that really matters is the FIM. And to be quite honest, the people in the FIM don't know what they're doing. Um, there's no question of leadership. There's no opposition to government within the FIM. And if you know me, you've heard me say it before, great opposition makes great government. It does because it makes governments work harder. 82% of the FIM's earning year on year come from Dorna. Dorna is the big dog here. Um, you know, they've got smaller competitions that they manage that don't have the reach nearly as far as, you know, MotoGP or World Superbike for that matter does. So it's it's intimidating and I feel like working here is easy to be intimidated as well. I, the FIM president, for example, also someone that doesn't take criticism very well at all, at all. And he's very quick to anger as opposed to listening to what a concern might be. Um, and when I think about leaders and leaders that I've worked with in really high-end businesses, which make billions of dollars year on year, the first thing they do is listen to your question and then ask you about your question, ask you deeper to explain your points. Whether you agree with them or not, a good business leader should be able to at least evaluate what you're saying. And I feel like that's something that goes missed here. Um, when we think about our riders, again, a riders union, I would love to see that happen. It shouldn't be hard to organise, but it's not the organisation that's the hard bit. It's things like if you don't race, you don't get paid. I don't care if you're part of a union, you signed a contract when? The union didn't exist then. So it's really hard to implement change with so much existing structure already. That's what's making it difficult. Um, I mean, we're still fighting about paychecks for sprint races, for God's sake. That's that's a, appalling, absolutely appalling. So, again, if I was someone at the FIM, I would be looking at ways to work with my riders, to work with my athletes, as opposed to making them feel like they, they don't deserve to be heard because they chose this life. And a lot of people will say to me, oh, you know, Loris Spaz in, in World Superbike loves to say it with the 12 races he does a year. They're races. They're meant to race. Like, that's great. They are meant to race. I completely agree with you. But just because they're races doesn't mean they're entitled to any less of a better work benefit than you or I as an employee. You know? Also, and I yeah. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if I interrupt you there. No, you're but right. But the Loris Spaz one pisses me off because this man was riding in Jerez four seconds a lap slower than what the guys are doing last year. They, he has no knowledge whatsoever on what it feels like to ride a modern MotoGP bike, what, it's, uh, what kind of stress it puts on the body, what kind of stress it puts on the, on the mind. And also he has no knowledge whatsoever on what's it like to be a Fabio Quadraro from an attention perspective because nobody cares about him. The only time people cared about him was when he had this save in qualifying in Austin, like in 2017 or whatsoever. Uh. It's like the only time people really cared about Loris Bassin was like his uh, five minutes of fame. But then to come out and criticize a rider like Fabio or Aleix who are fighting for a championship uh, to say, 
okay, you're racist, you're meant to race, don't don't be a crybaby here. It pisses me off because he is in no business to judge whether the MotoGP riders have a right to complain or not, you know? I think look, I won't I won't talk negatively about about Loris. Um, I do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I just don't feel like being abused today. Um <laughs> look. Loris is a good bloke. At the end of the day, I will say this. Loris is a good bloke. We go at each other on the internet. We really do. But also when he sees me, he always gives me two kisses and a hug hello. So I can't talk too much shit about him. Um, and at the end of the day, look, to be honest, it is a racing mindset. It really is. You've met racers. I've met racers. They're not like anyone else. They are the most competitive people on earth. And even if they feel like they're four seconds behind or if they are four seconds behind, the fact that they're there makes them feel like they deserve to be there, right? That, that's, that's how our industry works. It's how athletes work. Um, but you're, you are right in, in what you're saying as well. If, if it's not relevant to you and you don't compete in this part of the business, you have a completely different competition that works I would say in a similar way now, but obviously with half the amount of work um, and half the amount of sponsorship and endorsements and, and travel that comes with that, you know, they are, again, different. Everybody likes to sort of say that World Superbike and MotoGP are the same. They're not. They're very different competitions for very good reasons. Um, and I actually feel like that's something that World Superbike is really good at exploiting at the moment is the fact that they're not MotoGP. And that's working really well for them. And I love that. Um, I'm so happy to see that paddock sort of making decent, good changes because I used to go to World Superbike and think it was crap, really. Um, so I'm really happy to see people in that paddock enjoying their work, enjoying change, enjoying their racing. But again, it's not MotoGP. It's simply not. They're not the same. Um, yeah, conceptually, it's it's the same kind of idea of sit on a bike and go fast. But if that was the case, then Enduro GP and Dakar would be the same as MotoGP. And again, they're not. Um, so again, what really what it comes down to is nobody does this business like MotoGP riders do. Nobody does the kind of work like MotoGP riders do with the exception of maybe Formula One drivers who have an incredibly diverse calendar, who have many double, triple headers, kind of like we do. We're at that level now. Um, but we're not at that level because we deserve to be there. We're at that level because we like to find money and take it where we can as opposed to long-term beneficial investments. So, you know, you might only take 16 races a year and cap cap how much money you make that year. But in 10 years' time, the value of that will be worth triple or quadruple what it is now because it was valuable. And I feel like that's the step that's been missed. I think Dorna have been very quick to add races to the calendar because it's a very quick payoff as opposed to, let's turn this into a long-term investment where the money is steady. It's coming easily. Um, I think sprint races could have been added in a, in a completely different way. I think it was really immature how it was added. I remember telling Bedzeki about it at a press conference at the back of the tent in Austria, saying, how do you feel about, about sprint races? And he was like, the fuck? what are you talking about? So I think it, that's a big part of what's missing in our sport and I think it's also what the fans feel because the fans don't like to see the drivers uh, the riders feel discouraged or uh, insulted which it really was and I also think to a degree the fans felt insulted because they spent 20 minutes of their lives doing a, a survey which said I don't want to do sprint races 
And I will say, again, I was super critical of them. I am still super critical of them, but the racing is awesome. Like, it has been compelling racing. Yeah. With the racing, I agree with you that the sprint races are good, but the main races are shit. Like, the only exactly. thing that really happened in the main race was that... Uh, was that Paco is crashing all the time. Mark Marcus wiped out Miguel Oliveira and Jorge Martin. And what uh, Marco Bezecchi got the first win for, um, for Valentino. Like, but you don't get good racing on Sundays, which is right. bad. And I feel like you wouldn't need sprint races if the racing was good and if you would be able to promote it. But the whole money thing, uh, you were talking about is very interesting in two regards. Because A, we have Kazakhstan as a big topic, uh, how they're making money with all those tracks, but then canceling the races. And what you said earlier about that uh, they're just making a quick money grab, I feel like they have to because they're financially down so bad. It's it's like a cry for help that they uh, introduced sprint races. Everybody who kind of has more than three brain cells understands that this was a rash decision just to make money not for anything else and if you're in a situation where dorna and the whole MotoGP uh world is right now that again your superstars are gone or injured or whatsoever and uh you have no streams of income whatsoever the the ratings are down nobody goes to the races anymore therefore sponsorship money gets uh, cut short all of this stuff is happening And they need to figure out a way to stay alive and to make them, yeah, to make them survive. And therefore they're taking everything they can. So this is like my impression of why they introduce sprint races and why they do shit like Kazakhstan, Finland, whatsoever. I, I agree with you. Um, I said, I said it when sprint races were introduced in Austria, Tissot's going to sponsor it. Lo and behold, Tissot did sponsor it. Um, And I said it at the time, this is inventory. And the thing about events is you want to create inventory to sell. You really do. That's, that's the more inventory you have, the more you can gain in sponsorship, right? Because that, that's where the big dollars come from. When we talk about fans at the track, Dorna's income doesn't come from fans buying tickets. It should be a key piece to marketing, right? Because full stands on a full track make TV look really, really good. Like it would make the parade look really good if the stands were full. It it just would. It would make it immediately better. But um, when I think about how sponsorship works, the kind of sponsors that we're trying to acquire, I won't be I won't be overly critical because as long as they pay their bills and and act um, professionally, I can't be. You know what I mean? I ca I can't say what's a sham and what's not if it's done correctly I really can't but what I can say is when I look at even Superbike for example right like the Ducati team and Superbike actually here as well Ducati do a fantastic job with their sponsors they have world-class sponsors people like Lenovo, Salesforce, Cloud Group um, the, the kind of companies that are in touch with the world the kind of companies that are the touchstone for a lot of our fans Because most people, you know, today, I guess, motorcycling is a far more expensive sport. It's a far more expensive hobby. Uh, generally, with expense comes experience, comes a higher standard of living. I'm not saying that you need to make tickets expensive, 
But if that's your interest, you're probably more accustomed to higher end sponsors, right? And when I think about motorcycling in terms of sponsorship, it should be aspirational. It should be the kind of brands that people wish they worked for, people wish they were a part of. That's the kind of sponsor you want, um, which is why people like Rolex sponsor Formula One, because it's completely aspirational. You want to be a part of that world. And that it, it all trickles down. Like I said, there's so many verticals for marketing um, under this umbrella. It, it What contributes to consumerism? What cons- uh, contributes to sponsorship? What contributes to even things like uh, employee turnover, employee happiness, that all comes under this umbrella. Um, but in terms of the sponsors and what matters, I don't, I don't know what, look, when I, when I accessed the Guru website three weeks ago, it said it didn't exist. And now they're the title sponsor at Hereth. So I, you know, I don't, I haven't checked if it works today. Maybe it does. I don't know. But if I was an event company, and I was trying to sell tickets to an event with a six-month pipeline to do that, to sell out, I would probably make sure at the six-month mark that all of my assets were in order from my sponsors. So things like Guru, whatever it is, for example, was up and functioning and ready to be marketed because that's the key piece. And when you think about the calendar, even though there's 21 races in the year, each race is its own event. Each race deserves a kind of six-month leeway to sell tickets, to sell sponsorship. Sponsorship, not so much, maybe a 12-month period. You know, sponsorship should be sold, signed, sorted six months before that event so you can market it straight away. Um, When you think of other event businesses that run maybe 14, 15 events back-to-back throughout the year, um, the pipeline for those events was six months. It was, it's always six months because you want to get as many tickets as sold as quickly as possible. And you kind of want to sell 95, 90% of tickets in the first four months. You want it to be sold out by the t- like a month, two months before you get to the event. Um, so that all has to do with aspirational sponsorship. That all has to do with how people view the sport, how people connect with it, how people touch with it. And if you have sponsors that are difficult to understand, difficult to see what they're about for example if if they're a little bit confusing in terms of what they're marketing or what their product is that makes it really difficult to connect with the sport and a lot of people think that's indirect and it might be indirect in terms of the racing um I don't know is it Red Bull isn't indirect to racing I think of Red Bull I think of racing and I drink Red Bull because it's on that's how it works it's on my mind that's the whole point so that's how I feel about sponsorship I think if I was Dawna, I'd be looking for maybe more secure partnerships as opposed to the most expensive ones. I'd be looking for long-term periods of agreement and I'd be adding, you know, a 15% raise every four to five years the way that every other business does. Um, I'd be doing things like a re-sign period. So, you know, within three months after the event, you can re-sign for the same price that you had it the year before but maybe with less trimmings. So there are ways to generate income. I just don't know if they acknowledge that. And when you have companies like Gryffindor sponsoring uh, Misano last year or Cryptodata um, sponsoring RNF Aprilia or like these, these 
bitchy uh, crypto thing in Austria uh, a year or two years ago. I don't even know what these companies are. I don't even know what they're about. And it feels like it's just a huge money money laundering the, the thing, thing is, in the crypto world, you know? The thing is, right, it shouldn't, it shouldn't matter what the company is. It really shouldn't. Um, I'll give you an but example. It looks right? unprofessional. It looks but super this, unprofessional. But this is, this is why it looks unprofessional. I'll give you an example. Crypto data is a really good one, right? Because the blokes at crypto data aren't bad people. They're actually quite quite nice guys. I think what MotoGP did really badly was explaining what it is they do. And part of marketing when you're an event company is to make sure that whoever is sponsoring your event, it's understood what it is. I think that's and that's something that they don't do well. Now like Griffin for example, I don't I don't I don't know. I didn't look into it. I really I, do, I don't I didn't look into it. Because I mean it just I don't looked, care too. No, but the thing is, it shouldn't matter if you care or not. What should matter is you know what it is because you've been told what it is. Yeah, That's but... That's what the key piece is. If I'm a sponsor and I come to you as MotoGP and I want to sponsor your event, but you're not in a position where you translate to the fans, hey, check out what he what he is doing, yeah. like with uh, CryptoData or Gryffindor or whatsoever, what they're doing there, I mean... I don't even care what they're doing because Dorna and whatsoever, all the people involved, it's not just Dorna, it's like everybody else too. It's a little bit difficult to understand. In, I mean, if they don't make a good enough job to sell me, the customer, that this sponsor is doing something interesting, why would a sponsor even sponsor this? And exactly. this is like the problem. I want accessibility. There we're coming back. Then that <laughs> generates uh, bigger sponsors because the more accessibility you get, the more fans you get, and the bigger your audience is, the more attractive a sponsorship is. But then when you have the sponsorship, you also want to make the fans care about the sponsor in a way that the sponsor gets a value out of it Absolutely. and therefore comes back. And it's a complete shit show from top to bottom that they have these shady crypto companies where everybody thinks, oh, it's just a money laundering thing and they'll go bankrupt in a couple of weeks. And uh, like the MotoGP crypto thing they did in Austria like two years ago, what the fuck was that? And when when you have those shady companies or maybe not shady companies, but you're you're portraying them maybe in a way that they appear yes. to be shady. Um, yes. That makes the whole brand MotoGP look super unprofessional. And yeah. like a Rolex sponsorship, everybody knows what the fuck Rolex is doing. And it's associated with uh, something luxurious and something you want you want to have. But what the fuck is crypto data? I think I think what so crypto data, for example, actually um I won't go into it too much, but I, I don't think they're as illegitimate as they seem, believe it or not. They're actually... Could be, but of, they're, they're doing they're, a bad job. But here's the thing, right? This is the problem I see, right? They're not doing a bad job. The services they have around them to promote what they do don't exist. And I think the problem, the, the, not the problem, the difference between our sport, so MotoGP is here and Formula One is here, right? Formula One can say no. Formula One has the ability to leverage a pretend contract if they want. So let's say someone like, I don't know, Tudor Watches, which is the part of Rolex anyway, but let's just pretend they're not. 
Tudor Watchers went to Formula One and said, I will give you 40 million euro to let me sponsor you. Formula One can turn around and say, oh, but I already have an existing offer for 65 million from Rolex. Whether they do or not, they can leverage that. They can absolutely hike up the price of their sponsorship. That's what a good event company does. You really want brands competing to be a part of your business. MotoGP, on the other hand, doesn't have that kind of pull anymore. It doesn't have that kind of, um, what's the word, energy about it anymore. You know, if you wanted to sponsor MotoGP, I don't think it would be particularly difficult to do so. I know in 2016 and 2017, the minimum cost of um, sponsoring one weekend was only around 2 million euro for four days. To you and I, that seems an astronomical amount of money. In reality, it's not. That's a very cheap sponsorship for what is supposedly a global event with over how many millions of fans? I can't remember exactly what the data said, and I'm not exactly sure it was correct anyway. But we don't have that kind of pull here. We don't have that kind of leverage. And if I was Dorna, again, I'd be looking at ways to create competition within my sponsors. I want my sponsors to feel like the more money they give me, the better their outcomes are, which is exactly what you have in Formula One, which is exactly why you only think of brand names in Formula One. Here, doesn't I, I really don't care what the sponsors are. I really don't. That's not my concern. What my concern is that is that when they sponsor, I know what they do. I know who they are. I know where they come from. I should be getting regular pieces of media feeding me information on these sponsors. It's that's how advertising works, right? I don't I don't know what goes into a McDonald's burger, but I love a hash brown. A hash brown at 1030 in the morning, I'm loving it. That's that, because I see it, I hear it, I feel it. That's how ads work. And I really feel like that's that's kind of what's missing in MotoGP. We're not competitive enough, we're not big enough, and we don't understand the media well enough to leverage internal competition for sponsorship. We really don't. Um, so it's, you know, that's another one on the list of like the many things that we've spoken about today. And in terms of fixing it, for all of these little, they seem like little problems, but when you put them all together, they're big problems. But you have to go through them individually one by one. This process is not going to happen overnight. This marketing in, in the way it's functioning right now, right through from the platform and user experience, right through to, to the customer experience in the paddock is not going to change overnight. I, I do see this being an 18 to 24 month period of planning changing execution some things are not going to go well I promise you that but that's okay because they're going to be learning periods which this business currently needs to go through it really needs to go through that period of being at its lowest to ever possibly be at its best and I kind of feel like we're there now which is a good thing because if this is our lowest it's pretty damn good it's not bad it just has to get better and it can only get better from here. But it's going to take someone like Daniel coming in and evaluating all of these problems that we've discussed today and starting with what can I fix first that's going to have an adverse effect for my consumers, that's going to make my consumers trust me again. How do I win back these people? How do I win new people? How do I expand into minority audiences? These are big questions. And there's 
easy answers to them. It's just about removing the blockers. And I can't help but feel like we know the names of the blockers. You know what I mean? Um, which is hence why the pressure is not coming from Dorna to fix this. It's coming from above Dorna. It's coming from the majority shareholders now, which is why in some aspects Dorna are a little bit more accessible than they were 12 months ago because they can feel the heat. So I, I agree with you on so many points. I feel like we're at the time. Like this is the time. We will see change now. It's not going to be pleasant for anyone. I feel like the people who are going to suffer the most are probably TV. TV are going to be up in arms about a lot of things in the next 12 months. Um, but in saying that, that has to happen. That has to occur. Sponsors, existing sponsors are going to get a little bit angry. I can, f I can see that happening. I can feel that happening now. Um, but surely they can't be any angrier than they are right now if they're not giving, getting visibility as part of their sponsorship. So all of these things have come to the surface and I feel like Daniel's going to have, I actually think he'll have a better time of it than we assume because I think Dorna are more scared of him than he is of Dorna. So I, I, I have a, I have a feeling a that news. it's, yeah, yeah. I feel like when I say chalk and cheese, I really mean chalk and cheese. And it, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Yeah. What's absolutely weird to me that uh, it's not weird. It's understandable when you, when you know how our world exists, but when you have a rider like Valentino, who's bigger than the sport itself and He has like on Instagram, like 13 million followers, 14 million followers. And he's a very, very big name in motorsport. I saw yeah. the BMW embedded today or yesterday. Um, it had like 400,000 uh, clicks on it. And the other embedded had like 80,000. So Valentino is a huge factor in everything they do. And um, that's why he got the factory seat. I mean, he's not the best car rider, yeah. uh, car driver, I'm sorry, in the world. But uh, he has he has his name, and they, this is missing. And they need to build these personalities too, because when somebody who's bigger than the sport itself just leaves and goes to another spot, he takes all the attention with him. And it's not that Fabio isn't capable, for example, of taking his place, because Fabio is an incredible personality. Oh yeah, I feel like, but he isn't there yet, and. They are also doing an absolutely shitty job of promoting him as the next big thing. And also Yamaha is doing its fair share of uh, hindering him. But uh, yeah, that's a whole different topic. <laughs> I honestly feel like the, the, the overall the problem that we have is we don't have enough resources to do all of the things we want to do. And the resources we do have don't know how to apply themselves effectively. <clears throat> I feel like that, that, that should sum up the problem, really. If you are effective, even at just a few things, the key things, be effective at those, the rest will come into play. You know, it's like learning to drive a car. You, you, you can be an effective driver. Next step, learn how to effectively reverse park. It's all of those little steps that take you to being exceptional at whatever it is you do. Um, and it, It will take time. I and again, you know, when it comes to sort of owned media and native media and who says what and what goes where, Fabio, for example, I find his media channels incredibly dull. I don't find anything exciting. I don't I don't feel like I get to, I get to talk to him personally, obviously, for my job, but I don't feel like I get to connect with him 
on a hu humility level, um, which is what's missing. And I think, again, that just comes down to factories and ownership and contracts that are existing, legacy contracts, how we view athletes, our accessibility to them. Um, and I think that's the kind of thing that Liberty have done really well. And you have to remember the reason why Liberty have done it really, really well is that they're a marketing agency. Dorna like to say that they're a marketing agency, but they're not. They're an event company that don't use agencies, which is essentially what's prevented them from bettering themselves in the media. Because you have to train your staff. You have to keep yourself and your staff updated with the things that are changing in the world around them. Um, for example, when our Orio left last year, but so, so what, like it, it almost felt it wasn't a, it wasn't a big deal. And that's why Daniel coming in is a big deal because he's brought with him a whole bunch of skills, which haven't been used in this paddock. He's brought with him an understanding of modern media and modern changes. He hasn't come on the journey with Carmelo over the last 30 years. He's come from the USA, which we know is one of the biggest sport markets in the entire world. In the entire world. That is epic. Yep. That is so cool. And they're the skills that are going to be really applicable now. Yeah. And the NBA, where he's coming from, obviously, works with LeBron James being there, with Kevin Durant being there, with Steph Curry being there, but it will work when they retire one day. And that's, yeah. I feel like, the problem with MotoGP because obviously MotoGP doesn't work anymore without Valentino and Mark. Look, even even Formula One, right? If we, if we really want to talk about sports that are similar, what Drive to Survive has done really, really well has created tomorrow's heroes. And, the, and I can say this with a bit of confidence because at the... British Grand Prix last year, Formula One Grand Prix, the merchandise that outsold every other competitor, right, was not Lewis Hamilton. It was George Lando Russell. Norris? Ah, it was George I saw, Russell. I thought, I thought Lennon Norris, but yeah, George Russell, but, but a like, nice bloke. He's a nice bloke, but who cares? He's not Lewis Hamilton. It doesn't matter. What Liberty have done really well is set up tomorrow's heroes. They've set up the story. So when someone like Lewis walks away, there's a new hero image there's someone to look to that that's what they do incredibly well um and that's what you know is missing here and I, I feel like it's going to change I'm very op I'm very optimistic about that change um sometimes it feels like you're up against the world and people you know people are critical of the print media they're critical of me for my opinions and what I think about it um People don't like it when you point out the obvious. They really don't because it makes them feel like change is not a good thing. But change is a good thing. And I do feel like the next 18 to 24 months will bring really important changes, whether the legacy body that exists wants to or not. And, you know, I think when it comes to people like Daniel, I don't think that was a Dorner appointment. No way. Yeah. And that's exciting. Yeah, and we need more of this. And um, one thing before I let you go, the whole Kazakhstan shit is going down. They <laughs> announced the race in 2022, I believe. Mm -hmm. I mean, or at the beginning of 23, whatsoever. But yeah. it was a new track. It was newly built. Coincidentally, um, Carmelo's nephew managed the whole thing like he did in Aragon. So uh, 
I don't necessarily know how much of an implication uh, this has to uh, to Kazakhstan being added to the calendar, but uh, I guess it's up for speculation. And um, then, like with many other tracks, like with Finland, like the Circuit of Wales, like Hungary, like the thing in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, there's this big announcement. I mean, did I miss anything? Did I forget about a track that was announced and never raced it? Northern, Northern Ireland. Northern, Northern Ireland, Ireland There was one in Indonesia, not Malika, Mandalika. There was another track in Indonesia. Uh, look, mate, I'll, to be honest with you, right, I don't care. I've got a five-week break in summer. Like, that is yeah, wonderful. Yeah. I'm so That's happy. That's great. But that aside, that aside, that aside. It looks, again, unprofessional. It's, and It's very like, unprofessional. It's It was dangerous to go there in the first place, I think. And when I say dangerous, I mean in terms of relationships looking a little bit too close. So you don't appoint your nephew as a new member of staff and then also appoint in the same week attract to the calendar which he managed for the last five years I feel like that's a little bit how's your father um on top of that I don't know how much of a hand Dorna has in the construction of tracts but to say things like homologation again homologation right just means legally if we can do it or not it's how like you the get FIM to, grade right yeah but like Why was it not FIM graded when it was added to the calendar? That's Is that not a little bit, again, like suspicious, a little bit suspicious because it means you've taken a lot of money with no expectation of ever actually going there, but you've been paid. What's And the process? The What's the process like? Let's say I have a track. Uh, I built my new track. It's not homologated yet. Uh, apparently, it's no problem. So I come to you as uh, MotoGP and say, hey, I have this cool track. Uh, do you want to race it? What's like the process of it? How they make money announcing these tracks and never racing there, but they continue to do it. And I don't think that's that's because they're naive or they're stupid because they're making nice. money of it, even though it looks incredibly unprofessional. Yeah. So what's be, the whole proce process there? I have to be a little bit cautious about how I frame this. Hey, um, nobody, nobody listens to this shit anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> you say that. Someone's always listening, babe. Someone's always listening. No. Listen, I think, right. So two categories here. Let's say you're already an existing track. And let's say... Let's say you're perfect. Let's say you are actually the perfect track to host a MotoGP like, race. Like India. In every... No. But let's say a, a track that really exists, like Austria, right? Which is not perfect, I but mean, let's pretend in, that they India are. India exists. They raced Formula One there 10 years ago, so. Yeah, but Formula, are they, hol are they homologated, hol homologated for MotoGP yet? <laughs> no, probably not. Okay, mm -hmm. so you mean a track that exists, which so makes sense uh, from a location standpoint and also yeah. is homologated. So let's say that okay. like Austria, right? Okay. Red Bull Austria goes to Dorna and says, how much to have a MotoGP race? Because they pay to have those races. Dorna gives a figure amount. They sign the contract. Job done. In the event what, that the track doesn't... What is doesn't, this amount? Mm, I... I will investigate and come back to you on that. I am not sure. Thank you very but much. I imagine it wouldn't be cheap. Okay. Depending on who says what. Let's say in the event the track is not built yet, but there's 
a country, a city, a commune that wants a track to race at. Kazakhstan. <clears throat> Kazakhstan. Excuse me. <laughs> Those proprietors might go to Dorna and say, hey, we want to put a race here. How do we, how do, we do that? And Dorna might say, oh, hey, here's my nephew's wife's construction company. We'll build it for you for this much. And then they go, cool, let's do that. And then the construction company starts building and goes bankrupt. But they've goes been paid bankrupt or bankrupt. Goes bankrupt. Okay. Goes bankrupt. I don't I'm no, no, no. Goes bankrupt. But they've been paid for the job to do that anyway. So In everyone advance. everyone else wins except the commune that's paid for it and they have so a the half built gets, track. The taxpayer gets ripped off. Basically. But Dawn is still get paid. But Dawn okay. still get paid. So the process is the following. Um, I, as a country, community, whatsoever, uh, say, okay, I want to have a race. Pay Dorna and the construction company, which is coincidentally associated with Dorna, a lot of money. Then they uh, tr start to build a track. I, I feel like the track in Kazakhstan is already built, right? It is. It's part, yeah, yeah, it's mostly built. Yeah. There's no grandstands or like facilities, but it's built. I mean, they have no fans anyway, so I never heard... Anyone from Kazakhstan. But we could. But this is the thing. We could. Because you know who else goes to Kazakhstan and sells Formula out? Formula One. Formula One. They go to, they go to Azerbaijan. but uh, Yes, sorry, Azerbaijan. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I feel like then again, if the whole marketing uh, machine would work, then we could uh, have a new market where no Formula One is there, which is an advantage. But yes. yeah. Um, but then the track is built and... They got the money from the community, from the country, whatsoever. And the homologation is then the FIM who comes to the track and determines if it's safe or not. Yeah. And this appears to be a huge problem. Yeah. And this is, uh, this is a, how am I, how can I be critical, but also like complimenting? Not getting fired. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I, I do believe the FIM actually have a really hard job, believe it or not. Because our sport is incredibly dangerous. In saying that, I feel like there are places that they fall short on existing tracks, let alone new ones. Portimao. Um, Portimao is a great example. Austria, a couple of years ago, another great example. And the thing is, we've, we've become so fast so quickly that tyre manufacturers can't keep up with the technology that's how it develops them. Hence why we're having all of these crashing problems. Coda. Coda is not a track for motorcycling. It's really not. I have a great time there. I love it. But it's it's not a place that we should be. But we can't go back to Laguna Seca. We are too fast. People will hurt themselves. So we can go to uh, to Miami or Las Vegas and race with Formula One on one weekend on a street circuit. This well, it's would funny, be spectacular. <laughs> funny you bring that up because what I was about to say was when it comes back to construction and Dorna. If I was Dorna, I wouldn't be going out of my way to build circuits for other people. I'd be a little bit like McDonald's, a little bit like Liberty right now. And I was just in Las Vegas last week. I've done a lap of the circuit. The pits look awesome. They're built. Like Las Vegas itself, awful traffic because of this circuit that's going there. But places like the Bellagio, the hotel that sits on the track and the Venetian, are charging like $2,000 a night for a room that views the track, like the income from this place will be astronomical. 
if I was someone like Dawna, I wouldn't be looking at ways to build for other people and just take their money. I'd be looking at ways to own more of my sport, kind of like McDonald's does. McDonald's doesn't sell burgers. They sell real estate. That's what they do. If I was Dawna, I'd be looking for ways to create long-term streams of income through tracks that I majority own, that I can visit anytime I want, that I have control over with my calendar. Um, And again, that is a huge amount of money. That is a huge amount of investment. And I get that. But if in the next 10 to 15 years, we're able to have better long-term partnerships, we're better able to strategize, we're better able to invest our money into things that matter, into things that make us money, like owning property. That is something that I would find very compelling. Um, and again, real estate doesn't sound like it's marketing, but it is. Um, the ability to own our own property takes it, it, it just makes things so much closer for people. It makes it so much more accessible and it makes it easier for us to navigate what it is and where we're going and who we do it with, um, which is exactly why Liberty Media now own the circuit in Las Vegas. That's why they're building it because they own it. They can do what they want with it. Um, and Las Vegas oh. are Las Vegas are obviously thrilled because it's literally on the main straight. Every hotel is going to make a ton of money out of like gambling and hotel rooms and room service and tipping. All of those things play a part of it. My mom just called three times. I will just text her that a that I don't uh, have time right now. That's okay. Okay. I mean, like one call is uh, is cool, but uh, I feel like when she's calling three times, something something's up. But um, yeah, regarding the whole infrastructure, what you said about Las Vegas is um, is great. Because um, where I'm from, I'm from uh, Western Germany. I live like 45 minutes away from the Nürburgring. And the Nürburgring in itself, it's in buttfuck nowhere. Nothing is there. It's it's like not even internet is there. Yeah. But this area around the ring is such an economical, great place where back then when Formula One was racing there, it was better. And World SBK was racing there at some point. And uh, now it's it's not particularly great, but the Nürburgring was at a point where MotoGP is, um, is right now. And um, wait a second. Sure. Okay. So I asked her, uh, my mom for a favor and now she's doing the favor right now and <laughs> asked me a question. So uh, yeah. Very good. Yeah. The Nürburgring is in buttfuck nowhere. And the whole area around it is a very, very attractive place. Better when Formula One was uh, racing there, better when, uh, when World Superbike was racing there, but it's still a good place. And the Nürburgring was in a very, very difficult place. It got sold to some Russian dude, and now mm-hmm. he's rebuilding uh, all of the things behind the scenes. You know, a little bit like uh, Dorna and... Daniel coming in, you can compare this and yeah. it's going really well. But the Nürburgring is a very good example on how important a racetrack can be for the whole infrastructure in a, in the near area. And when you talk like Las Vegas, it's all obviously a little bit different, but like Aragon, Aragon is in buttfuck nowhere as well. But I guess the infrastructure there is okay-ish. It was uh, the you best country. You can, you can say that it's, it's in, 
I mean, it doesn't matter if it's in the middle of nowhere because what it brings is huge. I'll give you an example, right? Northern Ireland right now is going through a massive shakedown um, because the MCUI, which sort of manages road racing on the island in the north, has really not got a lot of business direction, right? They really don't know shit from clay, for lack of a better phrase. Um, What it's resulted in is crowdfunding to save an event, which I think is incredibly embarrassing. If I was running an event business, uh, I would be concerned about the fact that I'm asking the public for hundreds of thousands of pounds to save an event that I seemingly couldn't get sponsorship for. And events like that matter. They matter for smaller communities because it brings people to the town. It sells out accommodation. It sells pints. It sells hot chips or fries. You know, it means that the vendor might make an extra £3,000 that weekend selling hot chips because that £3,000 might save, be part of their holiday, might be for their kids, might be for anything. So location, right? Las Vegas, huge, amazing. Um, But having the ability to own and build infrastructure around anywhere you want in a place that suits racing to the ground. Like, you know, I maintain this. Not everybody likes Austria. It is my favourite track. I love it because I love my surroundings. I love being there. I like going to local Austrian bars. I like talking with local Austrians because you feel really far removed from the rest of Austria. But it's just fantastic. It's an experience. Um, And when I think about, you know, ownership of events and ownership of property, that's exactly what I'd be doing. I'd be building an experience and I'd be making it worthwhile for vendors to come and pay for a stall over the weekend to sell things like T-shirts and food and drinks. All of those things matter. It all contributes to the community around you. Um, And I'm sure in many ways that, you know, Formula One going to some what felt like very odd countries five years ago now today plays such a huge role for a lot of those local vendors. It's a big part of their livelihood. Um, You know, the Northwest 200 in Northern Ireland, for example, that's a big part of a lot of people's livelihood. And that's, that matters. It really matters. And again, that, that does play into how fans perceive the sport. Are things affordable? Are there things there for them to do and buy? Um, You know, are they willing to spend their money? on merchandise and food and drink at the event. Yes, if it's there, absolutely they are. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? And then we are back to the point I made at the beginning. Of course, racing, uh, watching the race at home is better from just watching the racing A viewpoint, yeah. But, But the whole experience, if you manage to make a good experience for the fans, then the track is better like once a year or twice a year. Not every time, but once a year, twice a year. Usually that's that's a good uh, good thing to do if you're a MotoGP fan, but you have to have a race which is organized well. You have to have a racetrack which is good. And my personal experience is that uh, Spain is the best for this. But um, yeah, like what you just said about owning a track and owning um, owning real estate, basically. I thought about a lot on how I would build my track if I had the financial capabilities to build my own track. And like I would, A, make a spectacular track, of course, but I would try to bring the fans as close to the track as possible. And the big problem is like the gravel traps. And yeah. I would 
try to construct it in a way where the gravel tracks and the service road are more or less underneath the grandstands and you can watch from above on the track, like basically in a football stadium. You're right there. And um, if you have all this unnecessary stuff like gravel traps, service road, you need for safety, but you don't necessarily need as a fan, you know, um, if you yeah. know what I mean, that, that you kind of uh, lay it above and then have an, at the grandstands, um, like a mall where you can go shopping, even if there's no races, restaurants, a gym, hotels, where yeah. people have like a whole vacation and can do stuff like an experience at the Nürburgring. There's a sim racing experience. I wanted to do it for the last like two or three years, but I never managed to do it. But I would like to do it and do stuff like this where I can uh, race in a professional simulator, which has like suspensions, all of this over my favorite track. And race with a gt3 car whatsoever which i will never be able to do in real life but it is to all sell experience. The, yeah to to sell the experience around the, around the track you know the the biggest marketing tool that any company has right any company i don't care if they sell a packet of chips soft drink moto gp i don't care what they sell the best tool they have is when someone goes oh, i love this you should try it yeah. that sells you know because the relationship FMCG companies have with their consumers or fast-moving goods matters. It really matters. The only reason I bought an iPhone in 2013 was because my best friend had one and it was cool and I wanted one and she really liked it. So I bought one and I've yeah. had an iPhone since. And it's, it's, it's quite literally that, that kind of you should try this, come with this. to You know, at the moment I'm, I'm seeing a lot of fans say to me, I'm so unhappy and it's so expensive and I can't afford to go and I can't afford to do this. And to be honest, Formula One's not any cheaper. It's <laughs> no. not any cheaper. But people will go. People worse. will go. It's way more expensive. But people go because they see value in it. It's not about but the price. Never has been. I mean, I get a lot of Formula One fans being frustrated when you see tracks like Monza, where mm. they're uh, basically not seeing anything and still paying 300, 400 euros for a ticket. But they're but having a good experience outside of sitting in the grandstand. That's yeah. everything I mean, plays into that. I heard last year in Monza was pretty shitty. It was a huge shit show. But if you make the experience worth 300, 400 euros, people will pay for it. But and I, you, have, yeah. you have to do build it up first and not just charge so much. And that's what I said to you before, right? We'll start to see this in MotoGP. And Liberty, obviously Liberty is still going through growth, growing pains. Don't forget, they're relatively new. So when things go wrong, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a one, good thing. What you, what you said earlier about accepting criticism, Formula One accepted the criticism in Austria where the Dutch fans harassed women. Yep. Yeah, uh, they uh, accepted the criticism in Monza, where people had a shitty experience and the whole infrastructure wasn't built for, for yep. the, for the uh, Formula One race. They didn't really accept the criticism for Spa in twenty twenty one because I noticed personally I was there. We had some complaints about tickets uh, refunding because this was just a shit show, but they they pretty pretty much didn't care. But yeah. Formula, one, uh, Formula One kind of is in a state where they accept criticism and want to do something about it. While MotoGP, remember the whole thing in Assen uh, last year, nobody cared. They didn't even do one bit there. 
and the circuit in Aston doesn't care, MotoGP doesn't care, the FIM doesn't care, IRTA doesn't care, nobody cares, and they need to accept criticism from from, from fans to to make the experience for fans better. Because I'm not going to a MotoGP in Aston again. I mean, yeah. World Superbike was great. It was a super cool experience. I can totally recommend it for everybody. But MotoGP, it's in different levels, just a shit but show. It's, it's like I said to you before, you know, there are so many hands in the pot here. There are so many people at play here. There are people with big egos that probably shouldn't be in roles that they are. Um, people do care. People do care. I promise you that. I can actually hand on heart say people that didn't care 12 months ago care a lot right now because their jobs are on the line they care a lot more than they did 12 months ago well it yeah and honestly with with that it brings good change bring pressure pressure makes diamonds or it cracks the rock so let's see what happens yeah honestly people who are in a position like let's let's take us as an example last year or like uh in formula one with um with Austria, where the whole uh, women were uh, reporting that they were being sexu- sexually harassed by uh, those uh, Max Verstappen fans and all of this, yeah. that if people are in a position of power and do not care about this, they shouldn't be in this position because they are exactly. in this position to care about this stuff and make the user or the fan experience great. And um, yeah, that's yeah. that's basically... Uh, all I wanted to say, uh, I will let you go now. And uh, thank you very much. I feel like we could talk for five hours about the subject. But yeah, I feel <laughs> we like will. We, we will we later ra- in the we, year. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we ran through more or less everything. And I would love to catch up with you if indeed change is occurring and to discuss this and maybe have something on hand to discuss what we like, what, yep. what we don't like, what uh, are these growing pains and whatsoever. So yeah, thank you very much for uh, for your time. Thank you so much for being the way you are and always, uh, yeah, being accessible when I have a question on what's going on and what's not going on. And yeah, I really appreciate it. And I would love to uh, catch up with you soon. It was sad that Anytime. you weren't in Aston. Uh, well, we, we will see you soon. Don't worry. We'll be around. We'll come and catch up yes. in Cologne. Any chance, uh, any chance you are in Most for a superbike? No. No, I don't, I don't, I actually have no idea. Uh, <laughs> when is that? I don't know. I've got um, like five races in my head right from now. From the top of my head, I don't know. I, f- I feel like it's at the end of July, beginning of August, somewhat around that. I might be on my five week vacation. So <laughs> yeah, the, maybe you deserve maybe. this. You deserve maybe. This. But yeah, we'll, we're thinking, we'll we're thinking about, uh, we are thinking about going to, um, we are thinking about going to Most, but whenever you are in Aston for MotoGP or whatsoever, just uh, give me a give me a text. Well, we might we, we might come in because um, Aston's not far from where you are anyway. So we might just come for a drive after the GP and come and catch up with you guys if yeah, you're sure. around. I'd love to go to the stables with sure. Jesus. So. <laughs> Yeah, if you uh, if you want to go to the Nurburgring, for example, I, I can take you there and do some uh, ring taxi experience. Those would you know be a what? great. Day. We should. I mean, we should interested. go and do that. We yeah. could make some cool content around that too. Actually, that's a really yeah. good idea. Yes. Yes. So yeah, we will catch up later. Thank you very much. I don't know when I will upload this uh, 
this podcast oh, right now. Just it's also uh, Thursday. Keep, keep an eye on the time at 2 p.m. Spanish time. Mark Marquez has a press conference. So yeah, we'll see um, what Keelan, my co-host for the show, <laughs> yeah. uh, texted me this while we were talking. So yeah, <laughs> Good. thank you very much and uh, goodbye. I'll see you soon. Bye.